This is American Origin Stories. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The story of America's first bank robbery is a story of a working-class hero named Patrick Lyon. Patrick Lyon versus a bunch of greedy bankers. It's a story about anti-immigrant bigotry, dirty politics, plagues, wrongful imprisonment, and the realization of that too-often elusive American dream. So it went down in Philadelphia in the summer of 1798, ten years after the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. It went down during a plague of yellow fever, delivered by that demonic, whining little predator known as the mosquito, called yellow fever because once introduced to a human host, the virus replicates in the lymph nodes, causing jaundice, headaches, cramps, fever, vomiting, which all calms down after a few days, but then comes back with a vengeance as the virus spreads to the liver, causing delirium, heart, and kidney failure. And then the bleeding starts first from the nose and the ears, and then the vomiting turns black with, you get the idea. It's a horror show. There had been yellow fever outbreaks in 1741, 47, 62, the 1790s, it came back hard and fast, fueling panic. And for good reason, people were frantically packing their things, scrambling to leave the city. Now at that time, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in 1798, was the capital of the country. It's where the Constitutional Convention had happened. Our founding document was written in the State House on Chestnut Street, right in the middle of town where the jail was. They didn't even call it the Constitutional Convention back then. It was the Philadelphia Convention, presided over by the representative of Pennsylvania, Gouverneur Morris, the writer of the final draft, who we've covered in episodes one and nine of American Origin Stories. The Philadelphia representative, Gouverneur Morris, was by far the most educated and well-read of the whole bunch, which was on brand, because Philadelphia was a mecca for intellectuals and high culture. Even though slavery was still legal, with nearly 4,000 people held in forced labor, Pennsylvania had just passed the Gradual Abolition Act, and so Philadelphia was becoming home to one of the first and most vibrant free black communities in the new nation along with a growing movement of allied abolitionists. Philadelphia was so named by the famous Quaker William Penn, who had envisioned a metropolis of religious freedom. He combined two Greek words, philio, which means love, and adelphos, which means brother, calling it the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. But back then, people also called it the Athens of America. And the total population, even though it was nearly the largest in the nation, roughly the same size as New York, was only about 68,000 people. So an epidemic killing thousands of people out of 68,000 was massive, and the fear was contagious. Every outbreak would cause now familiar patterns of quarantines and isolation, sanitary regulations, evacuations, and of course, arguing and scapegoating, causing chaos 
in a city that was densely packed with immigrants, trade wagons, and goods, and money, silver, Spanish gold, and banknotes. And that's what attracted 25-year-old Patrick Lyon, a Scottish blacksmith born and raised in London who'd been studying mechanics since he was 11 years old, to book himself on a seafaring vessel and set sail to Philadelphia, the capital of the New World, to seek fortune and brighter futures. His family was totally against it. This was no easy passage. The voyage sometimes took 90 days, three months, depending on the wind and the rain at sea. Being of the labor class, which was the majority of the world at the time, he traveled in steerage, which was the lowest category of passenger accommodation. There was very little food. There was very little fresh air. Everybody down in steerage had about two square feet to themselves. It was very dirty. Besides throngs of people, your other shipmates were going to be lice and rats. Usually about 15 to 20% of people in steerage died on the trip. Patrick Lyon was one of the lucky ones to make it. He arrived in Philadelphia in 1793, right smack in the midst of a yellow fever resurgence. By the end of that summer, one-fifth of the city's population had succumbed. But Patrick Lyon made it through. He found a job working under a master blacksmith named Sam Wheeler, and after a while, saving his money, forging relationships and trust with the clientele, he was able to start his own business. And soon, he became a renowned artisan in Philadelphia with an extensive set of skills and tools and expertise and a bank account with about $1,400 in it. This was an enormous sum for the time. It's about the equivalent of $40,000 in today's money. And that kind of success was very rare, which is why Patrick's family had insisted he not even take the dangerous voyage to the New World in the first place, but boy, had it paid off. So Patrick wrote back home about his good fortune. And to keep his money safe, he decided to deposit it at the Bank of North America. That was the very first bank of the United States. It had just been opened at the very famous Carpenters Hall, the site where the First Continental Congress had met, to begin plans for that insurrection against the British monarchy. That bank had been set up and primarily financed by an infamous British-American business tycoon and occasional slaver named Robert Morris. Robert was no relation to Governor. They knew each other and they shared a last name, but they were of no relation. Now, Patrick Lyon, he wasn't the kind of person who was easily impressed and he had no interest in getting caught up in the pretenses of the elite classes. But he did want his money safe and that was the place to do it. He proudly deposited his money in America's first bank. And on July 4th, 1795, he got married to one Anne Brindley, and the next year they had a daughter, Clementina. Patrick Lyon had no idea that his good fortune was about to turn to tragedy three times. First, when summer came, bringing back the mosquitoes and another deadly wave of yellow fever, taking both his wife and his only daughter. And then, in the throes of mourning the loss of his family, Patrick got caught up in the biggest heist and the only bank heist in the country's young history. So the politics of the United States at that time, they were as tense as they've always been. There were huge critical challenges that, of course, all dealt with money. Article 1, 
Section 8 of the new Constitution had given Congress the power to create a federal district to, quote, become the seat of the government of the United States, end quote. Now, the thinking at the time was that the capital of the United States was always going to be Philadelphia. They were talking about two spots just outside of town. But Alexander Hamilton was doing some side dealing. Hamilton, if you don't know about him from the musical, was the first secretary of the treasury. And at the time, our fledgling nation was buckling under enormous war debts incurred in the Revolutionary War. And there was a whole new string of righteous, anti-tyrannical tax rebellions that had sprung up in Western Massachusetts. Veterans of the Revolution hadn't even been paid for their service in the war. The leader of the uprising, veteran Daniel Shays, had to sell some of his medals to pay off outstanding taxes. The whole situation was outrageous. Well, Hamilton's plan was the creation of a new national bank and the consolidation of all the Revolutionary War debts. Problem was, the big slave states of the South, they felt they'd already paid enough, and they were not in favor of paying what they saw as the Northern states' war debts under a new central system of taxation. So Hamilton made a deal with the Southern slavers, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. They both lived in Virginia. Hamilton promised to help lobby support to move the capital of the United States to the south, to the northern tip of Virginia on the Potomac River bordering Maryland. And they were going to name it after the other most powerful Virginia slaver, George Washington. The slaver aristocracy wanted the capital deep in southern territory, as the continuance of slavery had already been the chief conflict of the Philadelphia Convention, and their economic power and expansionist dreams depended on it. So in exchange for moving the capital south, Madison and Jefferson agreed they would commit to reorganize the federal government's finances and centralize it in a bank. There was a twist in the deal, and it was negotiated by this business tycoon, Robert Morris, who'd made Philadelphia his home. Robert Morris's plan was that until Washington City was built, that's what it was going to be called, the capital of the United States would remain in Philadelphia for 10 years. And Robert Morris figured that was going to give the Pennsylvanians a chance to convince Congress that life there in the big city was going to be way better than the backwaters of slaver-ruled Virginia. Problem is, yellow fever was not helping this cause. But Robert wasn't the kind of guy who gives up very easily. See, he'd become a very successful merchant, pushing the limits on very risky moves for the time by shipping all kinds of products overseas, trailblazing on international trade, successfully because he was making a fortune. Now, originally, he was completely opposed to so-called American independence. He was British himself, he was doing great under the crown, and he didn't think the colonies could possibly win. But at a certain point, there was no turning back. His peer group all signed the Declaration of Independence, so he begrudgingly added his name and then set to work behind the scenes to try and tip the scales to the so-called patriots and his economic advantage. He used all those business connections that he'd forged doing international trade and organized an arms deal with European agents and started smuggling in gunpowder. Now, as a member of Congress himself, he used his position to appropriate money to his company. Now, that's what we would now call a no-bid contract. And so Robert Morris would also soon become the target of the very first congressional inquiry into corruption. Well, he bore witness that he hadn't profited that much from the war. But in fact, he absolutely had. With his fortunes, he bought 
the title to six million acres of land stretching from New York all the way down to Georgia, banking on the price going up and turning himself into America's first real estate tycoon. Some people call him America's first capitalist for all those reasons. And because in perfect American style, right in the middle of the first financial panic erupting in Philadelphia and New York, Robert Morris set up America's first private commercial bank and the country's first central bank based on the recommendations of Alexander Hamilton. How Robert Morris funded the bank, taking 63% ownership on behalf of the United States government, was by taking loans from France and the Netherlands and placing large deposits of gold and silver and bills of exchange and putting those in a vault. You see where this is going. Robert Morris and Hamilton had the bank issue its own currency to stabilize the credit and currency markets, which were all over the map. And as a PR stunt, they had the bank make a huge spectacle of raising and lowering cash boxes to and from its cellar. So who gets hired to make the metalwork and fixtures for this new bank? Patrick Lyon. And the location was going to be Carpenter's Hall, the largest rental space in the city and home to many a key historical moment in the events of the War for Independence. Now, Carpenter's Hall was a two-story, Georgian-style, kind of 50-foot square building with 10-foot cutouts at each corner. The weight of the building was supported by a 13-inch thick exterior brick wall. The place needed to be fortified, and it needed to be safe and secure because anti-tax rebellions were now springing up across western Pennsylvania, and the new national government needed to establish itself as a stable and secure operation. Carpenter's Hall is where Robert Morris kept America's central bank and eventually became First Bank of the United States until 1797, and then it moved down to South Third Street into a much fancier three-story brick building with a blue marble facade, keystoned by a sculpture of the head of Mercury, the ancient Roman god of commerce. There was a baby representing America wearing a helmet like Mercury leaning against the globe represented the international economy, and it shows Africa clearly labeled, emphasizing the human and mineral riches of that continent, and rests its foot on a beehive, which was an ancient symbol for industriousness. Next to the globe was a cornucopia, symbolizing a rich harvest that's spilling out coins instead of fruit. Behind the baby sit tall books that are financial ledgers, and behind the books are sailing ships and an American flag quite a symbol to represent the new Bank of the United States. Not to be shown up, the Bank of Pennsylvania, which had been operating out of an office in Philadelphia's Masonic Lodge, had just been vandalized by a failed burglary. So the Pennsylvania Bank was looking for a new home and a safer one. The economy was still in turmoil. Most people lived in poverty. There was seasonal and cyclical unemployment. There were low wages health problems, including mental illness, alcoholism. Pay for women was very low. There was a general lack of resources. Many communities were unable to provide for families or help the poor other than to incarcerate them in workhouses and almshouses. There was a constant concern that the revolution wasn't going to stop with the British monarchy and might extend to the colonial aristocracy. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So after this failed robbery attempt at the lodge, that was no surprise to anyone, the Pennsylvania bankers decide, let's sign a lease and move into the illustrious Carpenter's Hall. And they hire a contractor named Samuel Robinson so they can prepare it for new and permanent bank operations. Concerns about looters and robberies, the contractor decides he wants to install a new and more advanced lock system for the cellar vault. So the contractor works with his boss, Isaac Davis, who was the representative of Carpenter's Hall, and they go down and they remove the vault's iron doors and they transport them to the shop of the best blacksmith in town, who's Patrick Lyon. Now, Patrick's familiar with Carpenter's Hall because Pat not only banked there himself for a long time, but he smithed many of its aesthetic and functional features. Now, Patrick Lyon was very grateful that his money had traveled along with Hamilton's fancy bank down to South Third Street because when he actually saw the Carpenter's Hall vault doors, he was astonished. He had no idea what the original bankers were thinking. He knew who all these guys were. There was the bank president, a guy named Samuel Fox. There was the head cashier, a guy named Jonathan Smith. These weren't stupid people. Maybe they'd wanted to save money. Maybe they just didn't have the expertise. But this was not the doors that you need for a proper bank vault. And the locks were totally insecure. The Pennsylvania bank needed to start from scratch if they wanted to keep their money safe. Well, Samuel Robinson, the contractor, and Isaac Davis the Carpenter's Hall representative, they're kind of looking at each other and seem to agree without saying a word. Isaac's walking around the shop, looking at doors and keyholes and asking a lot of questions about locks. And then ultimately, they decide they want to use the same iron doors and just use imported locks. And the reason is that the project needed to be done very quickly. So Patrick Lyon just did as he was asked, changed the fittings, used imported locks that he did not think were adequate, and he had it done that day. The doors get transported back, and they're installed immediately with the help of the night watchman, a guy named Thomas Cunningham. As planned, Patrick Lyon disperses the new keys at a restaurant nearby and notices that Robinson and especially Isaac Davis seem very uncomfortable. So he just wrote it off as just your standard snobbery, Maybe these guys just wanted to be a bit bigger in their britches than they were. So Patrick forgot about it. He went home and got back to his business as usual, but not for long. Suddenly, he gets startled by a neighbor. 1,300 people had died before the news spread to Patrick that yellow fever was back. By some miracle, Patrick Lyon once again escaped the plague. He grabbed his 19-year-old apprentice. They jumped on a boat and sailed to Delaware. But by the time they hit shore, the apprentice was very ill, and two days later, he was dead. Patrick Lyon was heartbroken. He decided he was just going to stay in Delaware for a while. 
but he was glued to the newspaper reports of how things were going back in Philly. He figured he'd wait for the epidemic to die down before going back, maybe collecting his things and even moving to Delaware. But when he opened the paper one morning, he was shocked to read about a bank robbery at Carpenter's Hall, the home of the first bank of the United States, and now the Pennsylvania Bank, the bank that he'd worked on, the bank where he kept his money, had been robbed. It happened sometime during the night of Saturday, August 31st, or the morning hours of Sunday, September 1st, 1798. That morning, as dawn broke, the back door was discovered just wide open, and all the gold, the silver, the banknotes, everything was gone. $162,821 had been taken from the vaults. That would be the equivalent of about $4 million today. Well, Patrick had a bit of a suspicion. It was either that contractor, Robinson, or that Carpenter Hall rep, Isaac Davis, who'd acted so strangely in his shop, or it was both of them. And if it wasn't them, it was surely their responsibility for choosing such poor security for the doors. He told them. Well, it wasn't his business anyway anymore. So he just stayed in Delaware working odd jobs until he got one particularly exciting project, which was to fashion a metal diving bell, a diving apparatus which could lower people into the ocean so they could excavate sunken ships. While he was working on that job, he serendipitously ran into an old landlord he'd had in Philly. But their reunion was strange. The guy was acting very tense. Finally, Patrick Lyon figured out what the issue was. Patrick Lyon was the prime suspect in the robbery. There were people all over, from New York to New Jersey, hunting him down, hoping to collect a $2,000 reward offered by the Pennsylvania bank itself. Well, now Patrick was furious, and he was certainly determined to clear his name. Short on time and concerned about catching the plague, Patrick Lyon walked back to Philadelphia from Delaware, a distance of 150 miles over the course of a week, finally getting back to the city of brotherly love on September 21st, 1798. Patrick Lyon would write later, quote, I found I was in the hands of those who are not the most intelligent of mankind, end quote. Completely exhausted from walking for a whole week, Pat Lyon shows up at the county estate of the city magistrate, and he speaks directly to the bank director, John Stocker, and he gives a full account of his whereabouts. He provides receipts of work done in Delaware, including the invention of this diving bell. The director, John Stocker, talks to the bank president, Samuel Fox, who talks to the head cashier, Jonathan Smith, and they all talk to Constable John Haynes, who's put out this reward. And apparently, the officers of the bank decided that this whole story was going to make them look really bad. So they went with another story, that this immigrant, Patrick Lyons' locks, were so good that nobody but he could open them himself. And so he should be thrown in prison and kept there for a very long time. So Patrick Lyon was arrested on the spot with a bail of 150 grand, with the equivalent of literally millions of dollars. The jailer put Patrick in the root cellar of the jail on Chestnut Street by himself. So this was a cell that was about four feet by 12 feet, which Patrick described as cold, damp, and unwholesome. Pat was given very little food over the next three months. 
and so malnutrition caused most of his hair to fall out. He spent his time pacing and reading two books, the Bible and a copy of Robert Burns' poems. Pat Lyon wrote later, quote, I myself never expected to come out alive. Patrick indeed would have died in prison if it wasn't for Isaac Davis, that Carpenter's Hall representative, who had stupidly started making giant deposits into a number of Philadelphia banks, including the Bank of Pennsylvania itself. Under interrogation by the high constable, Davis finally confessed. He and the night watchman, Thomas Cunningham, had done it. Cunningham couldn't corroborate his statement because he'd just died of yellow fever. Samuel Robinson, the original contractor, wasn't involved, and neither was Patrick Lyon. But the bank's directors, they were very concerned about appearances, and this was going to look even worse than the original story. So they continued to insist that Patrick Lyon was an accomplice, although his bail was now reduced to two grand. While languishing in solitary confinement, Patrick Lyon wrote of the whole ordeal in a pamphlet that was called The Narrative of Patrick Lyon, who suffered three months severe imprisonment in Philadelphia jail on merely a vague suspicion of being concerned in a robbery of the Bank of Pennsylvania with his remarks thereon. End quote. At the January 1799 sessions of the mayor's court, a grand jury returned the charges against Patrick Lyon as ignoramus, meaning insufficiently proven, and he was finally released. But that imprisonment and the blow to his reputation destroyed him. He spent years in poverty, with little to no work. Being a guy who doesn't ever give up, in 1805, he decided to go after them. With some of the best lawyers in Philadelphia, Pat Lyons sued the bank president, Samuel Fox. He sued the head cashier, Jonathan Smith. He sued the alderman and bank board director, John Stocker, and he sued the constable, John Haynes. And he won. He won nine grand which at that time was about $250,000 in today's money. Paid by the bank. Well, not only that, a lot of people had heard about this story. The courtroom was packed, and there was such a thunder of applause by spectators, the judge threatened to clear the court and said, this is not a theater. Patrick Lyon became a hero. He became a hero of recent immigrants and laborers, and the money from the lawsuit helped him buy some property and start a new business where he began engineering and invented the construction of a totally new system of water pumping for fire engines. He remarried, and he became a member of Philadelphia's St. Andrew's Society, which is a charitable organization that provided aid to Scottish immigrants. The bankers, they kept their jobs with their reputations a bit sullied. But Robert Morris, who started the whole banking endeavor at Carpenter's Hall in the first place, he wasn't so lucky. The real estate empire from New York to Georgia that Morris had speculated on failed to skyrocket in price from a new influx of immigrants. That wouldn't happen for decades to come. So saddled with millions in debt, Morris went to debtor's prison. And when he was finally able to arrange his release, he had nothing. He had nothing but his father's old worn out gold watch. Robert Morris's friends, Alexander Hamilton and others, abandoned him. Three years later, the former vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. And Gouverneur Morris wept when he delivered the eulogy. But Robert Morris, he passed away three years later 
with no public ceremonies at all. The slave state power, led by James Madison and Jefferson, they were continuing their expansionist dreams. They drove the country toward a second war with Britain, invading Canada and causing another economic crisis. Now, although financially Patrick Lyon was a member of this elite crowd, he didn't want any part of it. In the 1820s, he commissioned himself a portrait entitled Pat Lyon at the Forge. Now, today it's regarded as one of the finest examples of early American realistic portraiture. The instructions that Pat Lyon gave to the painter John Neagle were as follows, quote, I wish you, sir, to paint me at full length, the size of life, representing me at the smithery, with a bellows blower, hammers, and all the etceteras of the shop around me. I wish you to understand clearly, Mr. Neagle, that I do not desire to be represented in this picture as a gentleman, to which character I have no pretensions. I want you to paint me at work, at my anvil, with my sleeves rolled up, and a leather apron on." End quote. In the background of the painting is the gun turret of the Walnut Street Prison. Hi, it's Jennifer, a founder of the Go Kid Go Network. Do your kids love wacky worlds, superheroes, and inventing? Of course they do. That's why our shows Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow are set in Pflugerville, the nonstop fun and adventure universe where imagination, creativity, STEM, and positive role models abound. Join the Pflugerville fun by searching for Bobby Wonder and Lucy Wow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.